0: The year 1976. The place, Entebbe Airport, Uganda. After a group of terrorists hijacks a civilian airliner, the Israeli Defense Forces embark on one of the most daring rescue operations in history. I'm James Hauser and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. <laughs> Hi everyone, welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. This is episode 5, Thunderbolt. I'm your host, James Hauser, and I like to think that y'all are having a beautiful day. This is a super awesome episode, and I'm excited that you're here for it. The 1976 raid on Entebbe, Operation Thunderbolt, the drama of an airline hijacking and a commando rescue operation, all sorts of good stuff. I hope y'all are ready to hear all about it. A couple things I need to say. As always, this is not just history, but military history. So there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13. The language is clean, the content is not. Second, all my sources will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want to know where I got my information, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, But all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Finally, for today's episode, a disclaimer. The Israeli-Palestinian and Arab-Israeli conflicts are incredibly contentious issues to this very day. While this episode deals with part of that conflict out of necessity, and the morality of all these actors is still up for a lot of debate, just go on any internet comment section that is not an issue I'll be addressing this episode. I won't be talking about the wider conflict. I did a lot of reading on Israeli-Palestinian relations and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in preparation for this episode, but came away realizing that I had learned too much to offer a short statement of any kind on the conflict. There's just too much to go into. So that's a topic for another day. I also have a second disclaimer to make about this episode. So I recorded this audio a few months ago, back when a uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was still Prime Minister of Israel. So there's some things I say in this episode that refer to him being currently Prime Minister, but on June 13th, 2021, he was uh, voted out of office. Of course, my first thought was, oh, that's interesting, world event, right? My second thought was, crap, I've already recorded that episode. But it's okay. Just so you guys know, Benjamin Netanyahu is no longer Prime Minister of Israel. And on with the show. Let's get into it. Our story today begins with a man visiting the place where his brother died. On July 4th, 2016, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made a diplomatic visit to Uganda. It was only the first stop in a tour of Africa, but this stop in particular had a special meaning, because Bibi Netanyahu was going to Entebbe. It was there, 40 years ago, that Jonathan Netanyahu, nicknamed Yoni, had breathed his last The visit was controversial, including its lionization of Bibi's brother. Some Israelis believed that Bibi Netanyahu was using the trip for political purposes, a scheme to turn his brother's memory and the memory of the most successful commando operation in Israeli military history into political capital at home. I don't pretend to be an expert on Israeli politics. Let me get that out there immediately. To me, it seems a little ghoulish to accuse a man of turning his very real, undeniable grief into political theater. But at the same time, there can be no doubting that Benjamin Netanyahu, one of the most controversial and divisive leaders in Israeli history, was set on his course to power by the events at Entebbe in 1976. Beyond the political implications for Israel, which has a knock-on implication for the whole history of the modern Middle East, the raid on Entebbe is far more important than we realize, and it has never really penetrated to the consciousness of American popular media. Most Americans don't know much about it, but they should. This event wasn't just high drama or a great story, and it's all of those, but really has shaped the world we live in. Entebbe echoes far beyond the boundaries of Israel and Uganda. Today, we'll be talking about the Israeli hostage rescue mission at Entebbe Airport on July 3rd through 4th, 1976, We're going to look at the hijacking of Air France Flight 139 and talk about who these terrorists were and what motivated them, because I'm James Hauser and I give you both sides, so we need to talk about the terrorists too. We're going to follow the course of negotiations and look inside the Israeli government and military's decision making process. Then we will go through the raid itself, all 99 minutes of it, and explore the aftermath for better or worse. Finally, I'll tell you why it's important. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. One more thing, because this is an epic story, there will be breaks. When I stop talking and you hear the music swell, that's your moment to stop at the gas station, stretch your legs, do the thing you need to do. So get ready, load your AK, and try to get some sleep before we land. And let's go on campaign. Where are we going you ask well let's find out the flight plan says we're going from tel aviv to paris but that is about to change sunday june 27th 1976 was just like any other day at around nine in the morning air france flight 139 took off from tel aviv israel on route to paris france with 228 passengers aboard flight 139 was a twin engine airbus jetliner Piloted by Captain Michel Bacos, a French World War II vet. Normally, he would be flying a straight shot from Tel Aviv to Paris, but a recent change in the flight plan required Flight 139 to make a stopover in Athens and pick up a few passengers. This unscheduled stop made some people nervous. Tel Aviv, due to recent terror attacks and hijackings, had some of the tightest airport security in the world. But everyone knew that Athens' security sucked. When the plane finally did touch down in Athens, a few hours later, a crowd of new passengers came on board Flight 139. Most of the 246 passengers now on the plane were Israeli or French, and a vast majority of these were Jewish. But there were people from more than 20 other countries on the flight. There was Ilan Hartuf, an Israeli businessman who was taking his 73-year-old mother Dora Bloch to New York for his brother's wedding. Sarah Davidson, her Israeli Air Force reservist husband, Uzi Davidson, and their two teenage sons were traveling to the United States for a vacation. Jean-Jacques Mamouni, a handsome young French-Israeli dual citizen, was planning to spend the summer in France. There were American tourists, British and German citizens, some Brazilian students, a grab bag of passengers from all over the world. A normal flight. But four of the passengers were far from normal. They had slipped past Athens's lax security, with heavy, suspicious bags. Two of the passengers were young Arab men, one of whom was described as looking like Mick Jagger on drugs, which raises the question, is there any other kind of Mick Jagger? The two other passengers were not Arabs, but clearly white Europeans. A tall, bearded, blond man and a young woman with short dark hair and round glasses. Though they traveled under assumed identities, they were German nationals, and their real names were Wilfred Boza and Bridget Kuhlmann. Eight minutes after takeoff, Captain Bakos was still bringing the plane to cruising height, and the staff was preparing to serve lunch. Then it happened. Boza and Kuhlmann suddenly rose from their first-class seats, each with a pistol in one hand and a grenade in the other. Back in economy class, the two young Arab men did the same. As Kuhlmann shrieked like a banshee at anybody who moved, Boza stormed the cockpit without a second thought, beating the crew aside and jamming his pistol into the pilot's neck. It had only taken a few seconds for the four incognito attackers to take control of Air France Flight 139. Some of the passengers did think about resisting, because everybody thinks they can be a hero, about rushing the terrorists, you know. But each of the four hijackers made it absolutely clear that the pins were removed from their grenades. All it would take was a split second for the plane to go up in flames. One person did try to resist, but he was knocked to the floor and beaten by all the hijackers, with Bridget Kuhlmann doing most of the kicking. After this, pretty much everybody kept quiet. Only a few minutes past 1 p.m., on June 27, 1976, 242 terrified civilians were now in the hands of four mysterious terrorists. At that moment, Wilfred Boza spoke calmly over the intercom. Here's what he said. This plane has been hijacked and is now under the control of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. I'm your new captain. As long as you obey our orders and do exactly as we ask you, you will not be harmed. Press pause on that scene. Hit the pause button in your mind. Keep it in mind. Because we need to talk about terror. Okay, one of the hardest things for me when doing my research for this episode and what I think will be difficult for many of you guys was to put my mind in the years before 9-11. Because when Americans think about international terrorism, especially Middle Eastern terrorism, we think of 9-11, right? I mean, it makes sense, it's understandable. But international terrorism in 1976 was not the same as in 2001. And we have to understand why to understand the story of Entebbe. What is terrorism? Well, terrorism is a tactic, right? It's a means of making war by targeting civilian populations to achieve a political objective. In whatever our moral judgments, it can be and has been effective. Sometimes terrorism works. But why would anyone resort to it? Well, terrorism is usually a tactic of the weak against the strong, which is why, after 1967, terrorism became the main tactic of Palestinian resistance to Israeli occupation. Okay, okay, stop. You might think this is the part where I explain the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Well, no, I'm not going to fall into that trap. Thank you very much. What, you want this episode to last all day? So I'm just going to assume you know something about that issue, and I'm going to get into the details as little as possible. Hear that sound? That's me fast-forwarding through 15 minutes of context. Moving on. Before 1967 the pro-Palestinian cause looked for an outside power to defeat Israel and help them return to their homeland. The idea was that an Arab nation like Egypt, Syria, or Jordan would defeat Israel in an open war and allow the Palestinians to return home, ending their long refugee status. Well, Israel put the kibosh on that in 1967 when they stomped a crater-sized hole into the butts of the Arabs during the Six-Day War. After this point, Israel's defeat in open warfare no longer looked like an option, and they were occupying the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, where most of the Palestinians lived. From this point on, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO, began to resort to terrorism to accomplish many of its goals. Now, the most powerful terrorist group within the PLO, because the PLO was an umbrella organization, still is, was the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, or PFLP. The PFLP was a left-wing anti-imperialist organization that sought to globalize the Palestinian cause by bringing the movement to international attention, basically start a bunch of fires to get the world to look at Palestine. Dr. Wadiya Haddad, the movement's chief military leader, planned to achieve this through the low-risk, high-reward tactic of airline hijacking. Again, Step back in time mentally. Americans will forever associate airline hijacking with 9-11, for obvious reasons. But before 2001, most airline hijackings did not result in large-scale fatalities. The typical method for terrorist hijackers before 9-11 was to hijack a plane, force it to land somewhere, and hold the passengers hostage in exchange for certain demands, usually the release of prisoners held in various countries. If you need an example, if you've ever seen the 1997 action movie, Air Force One with Harrison Ford, that's your example. Uh, Gary Oldman's character takes them hostage and tries to force him to land to get a political prisoner released. And that was what people thought of when they thought of airline hijacking before 9-11. Not suicidal, not always lethal, just a hostage situation that may or may not be solved diplomatically. And airline hijacking was surprisingly common in the late 60s and early 70s worldwide. It was a favorite tactic of all kinds of terror organizations. Let me put it to you this way. In the 2010s as a whole, there were a total of 15 hijackings worldwide, with three deaths as a result. In the whole decade, 2010s. In 1969 alone, there were 82 hijackings. By 1976, the hijacking average was three a month. This is an age when airport security was not great compared to now, especially not compared to post 9 11 and it was rare to have armed air marshals on board passenger planes. Hijacking was relatively easy, rewarding, and common. So Wadiah Haddad made airline hijacking the PFLP's primary tactic to raise the profile of the Palestinian cause. He had multiple successes throughout 1968 and 1969, resulting in the Israelis freeing many Arab prisoners. Haddad's biggest success by far, though, was the complex hijacking of three Western airliners that he forced to land in Jordan. Once he had evacuated the hostages, he blew up all three airliners in a dramatic display of force. Haddad had used this tactic to gain attention, and it worked. But it backfired, because it gained the wrong attention. The Jordanians were furious that the Palestinians had used their territory for these terrorist antics, and starting with what became known as Black September, they waged a bloody war to kick the PLO out of Jordan. After this disaster, Yasser Arafat and the PLO leadership put pressure on the PFLP to just stop the hijackings altogether, believing that the tactic had become counterproductive. But Wadi Haddad did not agree. He split off from the PFLP, founded a splinter group, and set up a new base and training camp in South Yemen. But now that he was separated from the PLO, Haddad had to turn to various other international terror groups to help him achieve his aims. Again, we have to put our minds back in time, because international terrorism in the 70s and 80s was primarily a left-wing movement. This included leftist organizations like the Weather Underground in America, the Irish Republican Army, or IRA, the Japanese Red Army, the Red Brigades of Italy, or the Red Army Faction in Germany. See, in a color scheme here? Me too. Terrorist scholar David Rappaport calls this the new left wave of international terrorism, which followed a goulash of anti-imperialist and Marxist ideals. You can think of it like an extremist version of the 1960s student protest movement. And this is reflected in some of those awesome 80s action movies we all love so much, right? Main villain of Die Hard, Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber, is a cultural artifact of that new left terror movement. One of these groups was the Revolutionary Cells, a German organization founded by leaders like Wilfred Boza and Bridget Kuhlmann. The Revolutionary Cells were one of the most dangerous terror organizations in Europe, and by 1975, they were closely linked with Wadia Haddad and his rogue faction of the PFLP. They were the ones that Haddad turned to for help, In his most ambitious attack yet, the hijacking of Air France Flight 139 in Athens. Seems odd though, doesn't it? Why did a German left-wing terror organization get involved with the Palestinian cause? Well, there were ideological reasons. Boza and Kuhlmann both believed that their own anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist cause aligned with the Palestinian struggle. Also, by joining up with an experienced organization like the PFLP, The revolutionary cells could gain worldwide attention for their own cause. Basically, they were piggybacking off the PFLP's success. Finally, there was a personal motive. Recently, the West German government had arrested several other German left-wing activists. Bridget Kuhlmann felt some personal guilt over the arrest of Red Army faction leader Ulrike Meinhof, since she had directed her to a safe house that turned out to be compromised. Part of Boza's and Kulman's agenda for joining the Air France hijacking was to put their own comrades on the list of prisoners that the terrorists wanted released. Boza and Kulman both trained in Wadi Haddad's camp in South Yemen, and they learned how to use small arms and explosives. But their most important training was in how to control and speak to hostages, psychological hardening of the kind that special forces trainees go through. Kulman was probably told that, as a woman, She would have to be tougher than the men, which was why the hostages regarded her as especially cruel. But her comrades didn't see her that way. They regarded her as kind and loving, but determined and committed to her cause. She was a passionate feminist, and her day job was as a teacher for handicapped children. It might seem insane that this nice young woman would be a terrorist, but it's often hard to tell passionate beliefs apart from insanity. When the time finally came, For Haddad's plan to be put into motion, Wilfred Boza was ultimately put in charge of the hijacking, and he and Kulman were joined by two trained PFLP hijackers for the mission. They boarded Flight 139 at Athens, well known for its poor security. Minutes later, the plane was in their hands. Now we're going back to the plane. You pressed pause on that image in your head, right? Boza holding the pilot at gunpoint, Kulman and the two Palestinians keeping the passengers at gunpoint, and resume. Boza forced Captain Bacchus, with a gun to his head, to change his course for Libya. Libya was currently ruled by our old friend Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, a supporter of the Palestinian cause. Two hours after the hijacking, Flight 139 landed at Benghazi Airport, refueled, and took off once again. Air France 139 headed south, into the heart of Africa, and none of the hijackers would tell the passengers where it was headed. But by day two of the crisis, June 28th, they had their answer. At 6.40 that morning, the plane landed on the airstrip at Entebbe International Airport, the main airport of Uganda. The hostages were now in the hands of one of the 20th century's most fearsome dictators, Idi Amin. I feel like a lot of people have forgotten about Idi Amin. Even though in the 1970s, he was often mentioned in the same breath as Hitler or Stalin, So it's worth talking a little while about this guy, because his presence in the story changes everything. It's what makes the hijacking of Air France 139 so much different from those other hijackings. Like many dictators, Field Marshal Dr. Idi Amin Dada was larger than life. He was a big man, a former heavyweight boxer, and he was usually seen in the perfect military uniform with a beret, or, of all things, a cowboy hat that he liked to wear for some reason. Amin was just extra in every way, including his insatiable appetites, both for power and for sex. He could be remarkably charismatic, extremely generous, and friendly with almost anyone. His lack of formal education and his enormous ego made him seem to Westerners like a clown, a ridiculous figure. But this would be a dangerous mistake. Amin was ruthless, unpredictable, and violent. Beneath the smiling persona he assumed in public, he was shockingly brutal, a rapist and a tyrant who killed thousands of citizens in his small country. There were two Idi Amin's, the friendly, naive face he presented to the world and the monster beneath. Amin had led Uganda's military after its independence from Britain in 1962. In 1971, he launched a military coup and seized control of the government. And his new government benefited from Israeli military advisors and assistants, just as their previous government had. But when they refused to provide him with the latest military technology, Amin turned against the Israelis. He expelled all Jews from Uganda, declared his support for the Palestinian cause, and began to present himself as an anti-imperialist crusader. His willingness to openly defy the West made him a hero to many third-world countries, and he had persuaded most African countries to break off relations with Israel in the early 1970s. Amin had gone from being close friends with many Israelis to being a public enemy of Zionism and Israel and an open supporter of organizations like the PFLP. But what did Amin get out of cooperating with the hijackers? In large part, he was just happy to stick it to Israel, but he also knew that openly supporting the Palestinian cause would give him street cred in the anti-imperialist world. That was the rational reason, but there was a more purely egotistical reason as well. I mean, just like being the center of attention. A global hostage crisis would get him international media coverage. As for the hijacker's motivations, Haddad had arranged for Flight 139 to land in Entebbe because this would place it out of range of any Western rescue mission and the Ugandan army would be available to help prevent any such operation. Basically, the hostages in Entebbe were supposed to be out of reach and too secure to be rescued. Several of Haddad's plans had recently been foiled by Israeli or Western intervention, and landing at Entebbe would hopefully prevent this from happening again. After their arrival at Entebbe, the passengers were forced off the airliner and placed in Entebbe International Airport's old terminal, a musty old building that had recently been replaced by a new facility some years earlier. There, gathered in the main lobby, they were constantly watched by the hijackers, several newly arrived PFLP terrorists, and the Ugandan army. There was no possibility of escape. It was from Uganda that on June 29th, the terrorists would issue their demands. Boza, with Kulman and the PFLP terrorists standing by, made the announcement to the hostages, while the same demands were broadcast over radio to the whole world. 53 terrorists, held in five countries, were to be released. 40 in Israel, 6 in West Germany, including Boza and Kuhlmann's left-wing comrades, 5 in Kenya, and 1 each in France and Switzerland. All negotiations would be conducted through the French government. The deadline would be July 1st, and if all the demands were not met, hostages would start to die. The Entebbe hostage crisis had begun. The Israeli government received the terrorist demands at around 1530 hours on June 29, 1976. This was day three of the crisis. This news immediately sparked a fierce debate about what Israel's actions should be. While negotiations were technically in the hands of the French, Israel held the vast majority of prisoners that the hijackers wanted released. And many of these prisoners were terrorists that had murdered Israeli citizens. Plus, most of the passengers on the plane were either Israeli or Jewish in origin. So there seemed to be three options. Option one, negotiate with the terrorists. Consider releasing the prisoners. Option two, launch a military rescue mission. Option three, do nothing, allow the hostages to die. And option three was unthinkable. I know popular media often depicts a refusal to negotiate with terrorists as a heroic stance, but Israelis in the 1970s looked at the problem differently. Remember, most of these men have lived through the Holocaust. There was a knee-jerk reaction to protect their own people at all costs, so saving the lives of Israeli citizens was priority number one. Nothing came before it. So it all came down to option one, negotiate, or option two, Military option. And that was the problem. All the military options looked dang near impossible. Entebbe was so far away, in a hostile country surrounded by hostile countries, that everyone, including Western countries, the Ugandan military, and the terrorists, considered it beyond the reach of the Israeli military. The Israelis also just straight up didn't know what was happening on the ground. They had only learned that Air France 139 had landed at Entebbe through a BBC radio broadcast, and the Israeli government would be operating mostly in the dark for the next week. They weren't even sure what Idi Amin's place was in all of this. Was he a passive bystander? Were his men being held hostage too, Or was he actively helping the terrorists? If the Ugandan army was in fact helping the terrorists, and the Israelis didn't know that, it could be the difference between life and death. Planning a military operation on such short notice, with so little intelligence, was inherently risky, and a botched operation could be even worse than negotiating with the terrorists. Unless something changed, negotiations seemed to be the only option. This was the stance of Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Here's what he said to his staff about the dilemma. I long ago made a decision of principle, well before I became Prime Minister that if a situation were ever to arise when terrorists would be holding our people hostage on foreign soil, and we were faced with an ultimatum either to free killers in our custody or let our own people be killed, I would, in the absence of a military option, give in to the terrorists. So I say now, if the defense minister and the chief of staff cannot come up with a credible military plan, I intend to negotiate with the terrorists. I would never be able to look a mother in the eye if her soldier or child or whoever it was, was murdered because of a refusal to negotiate or because of a botched operation. Rabin's political rival, Defense Minister Shimon Peres, held the other point of view. Peres believed that if Israel gave in to terrorists for any reason, they would forfeit their standing in the world and open themselves up to further attacks. Peres would constantly push for a military solution to the hostage crisis at Entebbe, but he didn't have much ground to stand on Unless there was some sort of plan available that wouldn't just get everybody killed. By day five of the crisis, July 1st, Rabin concluded, over Perdaz's angry protests, that since no such military plan existed, they had no choice but to begin negotiations with the hijackers. The New York Times headline that day simply read, Israel Surrenders. Without a military option on the table, there was nothing to be done. It seemed like the terrorists had already won. Now, it wasn't like the Israeli military wasn't working on a plan to rescue the hostages at Entebbe. As soon as the IDF, or Israeli Defense Forces, learned about the hijacking, they were doing their best to workshop some kind of operation that could rescue the hostages. But even the most experienced Special Forces veterans knew that without more information or some way to overcome the enormous distance between Israel and Uganda, any such mission would be a desperate gamble and they were gambling with the lives of both soldiers and the civilian hostages. If there was going to be a rescue mission, it was going to be the responsibility of the IDF's finest. This was the Sayeret Matkal, or the General Staff Reconnaissance Unit, often referred to just as The Unit. You can hear those capital letters, right? The Unit was Israel's elite counterterrorism strike force. It was full of highly experienced commandos and had been at the forefront of counterterrorism for the last decade. Many of its operations had been highly successful, such as the successful storming of a hijacked Sabana airliner at Tel Aviv in 1972. But the unit had suffered setbacks, especially the tragedy at Ma'alot in 1974. Here, several Palestinians took an elementary school hostage. And the unit's botched rescue operation resulted in the terrorists massacring 22 children with grenades and automatic weapons. The unit was not invincible, and the shadow of Ma'alot weighed heavy on its commanders. No one wanted another Ma'alot, no matter what the cost. The deputy commander of the unit was Major Muki Betzer, a veteran of Ma'alot and one of the first officers to begin planning the Entebbe rescue operation. When they began to plan the raid, Betzer had the unique advantage of being very familiar with Uganda. He had been part of Israel's military mission in the early 1970s, and he knew Idi Amin personally. When he was asked to give an assessment of the Ugandan military, Betzer said that they were pretty good, after all, he had trained them. But they were poorly motivated, and didn't like to fight at night. At this point, though, the Israelis were still uncertain as to whether the Ugandans were even hostile, and until they had an answer, it would be very hard to plan the operation. While Betzer put the unit on high alert, he was in touch with the unit's commander. Lieutenant Colonel Yonatan Netanyahu, or Yoni to his friends, was on an exercise in the Sinai Peninsula. Yoni was a hard, driven man, ambitious, stern, and traditional. He was an odd choice to lead a unit of high-level operators, and he was not a popular leader due to his standoffish attitude and fanatical approach to standards and discipline. He was kind of cold, But he would be the man on the spot if Israel had to launch a special forces mission to rescue the hostages. But Yoni was going through a crisis of his own. Out in the desert and hearing the news of the Entebbe crisis, Yoni wrote a letter to his girlfriend, Bruria, explaining his state of mind. Here's what the letter said. I am tired most of the time. That's only part of the problem. I've lost the spark. I keep asking myself why. Is it that my work doesn't absorb me? doesn't hold me? Wrong. On the contrary, it possesses me, and I don't want it to. And the same haunting questions come up. Can I let myself live like this, work like this, and wear myself out? Good that I have you, and good I have somewhere to lay my weary head. I know I'm not with you enough, and that makes it hard for you to be alone so much. But I trust you, me, both of us, to manage living our life to the full. You to live your youth and your life, and I, my life, and the last flicker of my youth. Coming off a recent divorce and looking down the barrel of old age and an end to his military career, the commander of Israel's premier special forces unit was in the middle of a midlife crisis, days away from the most important mission of his life. Meanwhile, back in Entebbe, the hostages were in a state of perpetual panic. Soon after they landed, they were surprised to receive a visit from none other than Dr. Idi Amin Dada. Amin would visit the hostages several times, and on each occasion would update them about the state of negotiations and remind them that Israel's actions were responsible for their hijacking. Now, most of these speeches were self-glorifying and patronizing. I considered doing my quote thing for them in this episode, but I really don't want to give this guy the airtime. Rest assured that Amin's speeches swung wildly between threatening and generous, and that many people looked forward to his visits because he brought news and occasionally announced the release of certain hostages. To me, it's pretty clear that Amin was partially coming around to gloat and lord his power over the Israeli prisoners. So how were the hostages doing? To be honest with you guys, if you're looking for an uplifting, edifying story here, you're going to be kind of disappointed. Most of the hostages were concerned with their own immediate survival, which is understandable, but some of them displayed a selfishness and cowardice that you would never see in a Hollywood movie. There wasn't a lot of stiff upper lip going on in Entebbe in 1976, but there were also some who shared everything they had and did everything they could. A French Jewish banker and Nazi hunter named Michel Coljo, who has a really fascinating life beyond this raid, by the way, had been co-opted into being a translator for the terrorists but he managed to get some of the older hostages released to their embassies. Jean-Jacques Mamouni, the young Jewish teenager, was particularly selfless, always trying to keep spirits up, helping to distribute food and making tea for the elderly passengers. Some of the hostages tried to establish a relationship with the terrorists, especially Wilfred Boza and Brigitte Kuhlmann. Boza was particularly sensitive to accusations of similarity with the Nazis, especially when Kajou, who was a Holocaust survivor, chided him for betraying his ideals as a leftist. Boza turned pale and looked away when the Auschwitz survivor Yitzhak David showed him the number tattoo on his arm. Interactions like these pretty clearly began to get to Boza, and he showed more and more sympathy with his hostages as time went on. Even Bridget Kuhlmann, who was so fierce and unyielding and cruel to most of the passengers, could never say no or be mean to the children she had been a teacher after all. The German terrorists were gaining sympathy for their passengers. But things began to change on June 29th, day three. That afternoon, the Israeli hostages were separated from the others and moved into a different room. This coincided with the arrival of a new PFLP boss, who began to treat the hostages with far more cruelty than the two original Palestinians, Boza or even Kuhlman, had. Finally, Amin arrived once again to announce that a number of sick, elderly, and women and children hostages would be released, but only a select number and no Israelis. It became clear that the Israelis were the true targets of the hijacking, and this was not a good sign. Some of them had hope. Israeli hostage Sarah Davidson, fearing for the life of her IDF reservist husband and their two teenage sons, believed that the negotiations would come through. Everything is now being settled. We'll soon be flying onward on our family excursion. Illusions, maybe, because a situation like this makes you want to delude yourself. Maybe the soul needs delusions to fortify it. But her 13-year-old son, Benny, was already taken by despair. He whispered to her that night, Mama, we won't get out of here. We're not going to get out. What does it do to a mother to hear that? Meanwhile... Back in Tel Aviv, Colonel Ehud Barak's IDF planning team, including Major Muki Betzer, was hard at work on schemes to rescue the hostages at Entebbe. The military problem seemed impossible. The hostages were held by extremely committed foreign terrorists, 2,000 miles away, protected by a dictator and an army that were openly hostile to Israel. The Israelis still weren't sure whether Amin was openly assisting the terrorists, but if he was the raid would have to battle both the terrorists and the Ugandan army, which made its chances of success much lower. And this was a hostage rescue mission. If anything went slightly wrong, if the terrorists had a minute of warning, many of the hostages would be dead before the commandos could do anything to stop it. One big advantage the planners had was that they were very familiar with Entebbe Airport. This wasn't just because of their previous work with Amin's regime but also because an Israeli company had designed and built the old terminal where the hostages were held. A set of the terminal's blueprints was posted in the command center, where Barak, Betzer, and the team began to workshop their ideas. They studied the map of the airport and the blueprints of the terminal. Entebbe Airport lay on the northern shore of Lake Victoria, facing Kenya to the east and Tanzania to the south, but neither of these countries had friendly diplomatic relations with Israel, so the IDF could expect no help from either of them. This lack of any friendly countries in the area exacerbated the issue of distance. It was a 2,500-mile flight from Israeli airbases to Entebbe. This was barely within the range of the C-130 Hercules transport plane, which Israel had just recently acquired from the United States. Air Force personnel, led by Colonel Joshua Shani, crunched the numbers, and they reported that without somewhere to refuel in Africa itself, there would be no way to get a large rescue force into Entebbe and bring them back. Finally, securing the terminal and rescuing the hostages would require more than just a small team. If the Israelis had to fight the terrorists and the Ugandans, they would need to basically transport a small army. They would be capable of protecting the hostages while fighting off a sizable military force. This would require a large-scale airlift, but the larger the force, the greater the chance it would be detected and the more planning and fuel it would require. These issues, distance, surprise, the size of the force needed, would all make the operation difficult on its own, even without the Ugandans interfering, Even as the team tried to come up with a plan, remember, the clock is ticking, before the Israeli government either gives in or the terrorists start killing hostages. By day four, June 30th, 1976, Barak's team had four possible plans. None of them looked good, especially since they all assumed that Idi Amin and the Ugandan army would stay neutral. The first plan was for the unit to parachute into Lake Victoria with inflatable boats. Then they would launch an amphibious attack on the terminal, kill the terrorists, secure the hostages, and hand themselves over to the Ugandans. And get this, that was the best plan. The second plan involved an assault force to infiltrate overland from Kenya, which wouldn't work unless Kenya was on board and still ignored the problem of the Ugandan army. The third plan was Betzer's idea, where Israel would pretend to release the Palestinian prisoners, but they would actually be members of the unit in disguise. This sounds like a cool James Bond-style idea, but this still relied on Ugandan cooperation after the mission was completed. The final plan was to literally invade Uganda with a force of nearly a thousand men, which would be so large that the element of surprise would almost certainly be lost. And again, there was the question of how to get it back to Israel in one piece. What I'm trying to get at by showing you all these plans is how difficult this situation was the need to overcome the massive distance, the need for total surprise to keep the terrorists from just killing all the hostages, the problem of getting enough guns on the ground to fend off the Ugandan army if they were hostile, and most importantly, the question of how to get back once the hostages have been freed. You can get a commando team into Uganda, but how do you get them and the hostages out again? So this was the dilemma of the Entebbe crisis. With all these problems, with hours before the terrorist deadline, the IDF reported to Defense Minister Shimon Peres that they had no workable military option available. They needed more time, more information, some way to make the plan work, none of which seemed to be coming. It looked like Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin had been right. Israel would have to negotiate with the terrorists. But then, on July 1st, day 5, hours before the deadline, The whole situation changed. At 1100 hours, on July 1st, 1976, just one hour before the terrorist deadline, and as negotiations were already taking place in Paris, Yitzhak Rabin received a call. The call changed everything. The terrorists had extended their ultimatum to July 4th, a full three days in order for negotiations to proceed. In addition, the terrorists would release another group of 100 hostages, this time mostly European and American nationals. These hostages would arrive unharmed in Paris early on July 2nd. This would leave only 106 hostages left in Entebbe, 84 Israelis, 10 young French passengers, and the 12 crew members of the Air France flight. The deadline extension changed the situation, and the returning hostages changed the situation more. Not that I'm rooting for the terrorists here, But it was kind of a bad move to let all these people go. Many of them, like Michel Colgeau, the Holocaust survivor, had been keeping close tabs on every detail of the terminal. And when the hostages were debriefed by Western and Israeli intelligence, they gave up plenty of information. This included the location of the hostages, the numbers and locations of the terrorists, the layout of the defenses, and the critical knowledge that Idi Amin was definitely cooperating with the hijackers. All this info was very quickly in the hands of Israeli intelligence and rapidly integrated into the new plan. Finally, the deadline extension also gave the Israelis time to work the diplomatic circuit. Their target was Kenya. While Kenya, like every country in Africa, almost every country, had officially cut off relations with Israel after the 1973 Yom Kippur War, the Israelis and Kenyans had been secretly working together for years. Earlier in 1976, Mossad, the Israeli intelligence service, had provided vital intel to the Kenyan government that helped prevent PFLP terrorists from blowing up an airliner at Nairobi Airport. The Kenyan ministers agreed to help Israel under two conditions. First, their cooperation had to be kept under wraps, since they didn't want to be a target for Amin or the Palestinians. Second, if at all possible, The IDF had to blow up Amin's air force so he couldn't attack Kenya after the raid took place. The IDF said, sure, I mean, we probably would have done that anyway, but since you asked so nicely. These three things had fallen into place to make an Israeli operation possible. Time, intelligence, and a local ally. With these new developments, and with Yoni Netanyahu finally back from his training and now back in the loop on planning, the final plan took shape. Here's how it went. Four C-130 Hercules transports would take off from the tip of the Israeli-occupied Sinai Peninsula. They would land on the Entebbe International Airport tarmac, with the pilots pulling off the extremely difficult task of landing at night without landing lights. Once the first C-130 came to a stop, it would drop its ramp. Thirty-six soldiers of the unit, led by Colonel Netanyahu and Major Betzer, And dressed in Ugandan tiger-stripe camo uniforms, they would all drive off the plane in two Land Rovers and a black Mercedes that had been specially painted, the black Mercedes, to look like the typical government vehicle of a general or even Idi Amin himself. So they got this Mercedes that looks like it could be a Ugandan government vehicle. The unit had acquired the Mercedes at very short notice from a local dealer, and they had to repaint it and refurbish it in a matter of hours to get it ready for the operation. The idea was that the deception of the car and the uniforms would enable the unit's break-in team to slip past Ugandan sentries. They would pull up to the terminal, rush in, kill the terrorists, and secure the hostages before anyone knew what was happening. Meanwhile, three other C-130s would land along the same path, carrying four BTR armored personnel carriers and a large force of Israeli paratroopers. The heavy machine guns of the light eight-wheeled BTRs would provide fire support against Ugandan reinforcements. There were also trucks and a medical team to transport and take care of the hostages and a squad of Air Force techies that would try and refuel the planes from Entebbe's fuel tanks. Once the hostages were on board the planes and Amin's Air Force had been blown up, the strike force would take back off. If they had managed to steal Amin's fuel, they would head back to Israel. The backup plan was that they would land temporarily in Kenya, which is why that government's cooperation had been so essential. The plan provided for backup Israeli techs and medical personnel in Kenya on the ground just in case. So that was the plan. It would be difficult, at best. So many things could go wrong. The terrorists could be tipped off by an accident or by a gunshot and kill all the hostages on the spot. The hostages could have been moved, or the Ugandans could have been reinforced, and the Israelis might not know it. All of these issues had Mota Gur, the IDF chief of staff, very worried. He described it as sounding like a James Bond movie, not in a good way, and worried that it could end up like Ma'alot, or worse, like the Bay of Pigs, with the commando stranded and with no way to get back. But when it came to tactical details, he was worried about an unsecured control tower that overlooked the entrance to the old terminal. Netanyahu replied that he didn't have enough men to secure the control tower, and that leaving it unoccupied was a calculated risk. When Perez and finally Rabin approved the plan, the unit began to drill and rehearse with only 18 hours before they would have to leave for Uganda. Many of the unit's officers and men were nervous about the short time frame. Normally, for something this risky and this easy to mess up, they would have weeks or even months to train. Instead, They had hours, but there was no choice. It would be the first Israeli military operation to ever take place outside the Middle East, the most long-range hostage rescue mission in history, and so, so many things could go wrong. Muki Betzer, haunted by the massacre of the schoolchildren at Ma'alot, was determined not to let history repeat itself. Brigadier General Don Shomron, an experienced infantryman who would coordinate the mission on the ground, was responsible for naming the operation. When he asked the IDF's computer center for an operational name, the randomly generated name was Wave of Ash. Yeah, it kind of sucks as a code name, doesn't it? Shamran told them to try again, and this time the computer produced Thunderbolt, which was perfect for the nature of the operation. Operation Thunderbolt, it would be. Yoni Netanyahu took a quick trip back to the apartment he shared with his girlfriend, Ruria, hoping to get a few hours of sleep. She woke the next morning at 0700 hours on day 7, July 3rd, 1976, to find him putting on his uniform. Bruria tried to get him to slow down and talk a little bit. She had read his letter that he had written her in the desert and was worried about his mental state. But the unit was already waiting for its commander, and he had to go. After kissing her and saying he had to run, Yoni was out the door. Bruria ran out after him, only to see Yoni Netanyahu vanish into the darkness. The hostages at Entebbe waited with sinking hopes on the seventh day of their captivity. Many had fallen ill from food poisoning and diarrhea due to the poor conditions. Though Sarah Davidson, mother and wife, tried to keep her spirits up, and young Jean-Jacques Mamouni continued to tell jokes and try to liven up the mood, it was hard to feel any optimism for their immediate future. The hijackers had grown antsy, and a new Palestinian had briefly shown his face during Idi Amin's most recent visit, a man that is today widely suspected to have been Wadia Haddad, the mastermind behind the hijacking. It seemed that the end was coming, one way or another. One hostage was absent. The 73-year-old grandmother, Dora Block, had a piece of food stuck in her throat on day 6, July 2nd, and had been taken to a Ugandan hospital in Kampala. There she was well looked after by the sympathetic Ugandan Minister of Health, Henry Chimba, but even he could do nothing about the Ugandan soldiers outside her door. Chimba, like every Ugandan, lived in abject terror of Idi Amin and his secret police, the Orwellian-sounding State Research Bureau. There was little Chimba could do to protect Dora Block if something went down. The tension encompassed everyone, including the Air France pilot Michel Bacos. He could only remember what Wilfred Boza had told him not long ago. If any army from any country comes to save you, you can rest assured we will hear them first, and before they get to you, we will kill every last one of you. Unbeknownst to the terrorists or the hostages, the Thunderbolt was on its way. So now we'll get into Operation Thunderbolt, the raid on Entebbe. I want to remind everyone before we begin, the following events happen in the space of a few hours. To the people involved, it must have seemed like time moved very slowly, and I don't doubt for a second that every single moment is imprinted on their minds forever. The raid on Entebbe has been dissected and analyzed from every conceivable angle since it took place, and there's still some doubt as to what exactly went down. After all, we're doing eyewitness testimony here, and eyewitness testimony is unreliable, even in modern criminal investigations. This is just as true for the 99 minutes at Entebbe. Even as the planes were on the way, Prime Minister Rabin was giving his final go-ahead for the operation. It had to happen as soon as possible, because the terrorist deadline expired in less than a day. It was a tough decision, since even the most optimistic predictions for the mission Accepted the likelihood of casualties, but Israel had to free its people, no matter what the risk or the cost. After receiving a set of last-minute surveillance photos of the old terminal, taken by a Mossad agent, the four C-130s rose into the sky for the 2,484-mile, eight-hour flight south to Uganda. It was a terrible flight, with the overloaded planes flying low to avoid radar detection and exposed to storms along the way. A normal C-130 is rated to carry 155,000 pounds under normal conditions, but most of the planes leaving Israeli territory were extremely overweight. One of the soldiers, Sergeant Amir Offer, remembered the flight. I threw up many times. It was very hot. Flying beneath the radar, there was so much turbulence. The doctor gave me pills to take, and I was so afraid I would collapse that I took one every hour for the rest of the flight. The floors of the C-130s were covered in vomit as the commandos endured their miserable journey to Entebbe. Soon they were flying into the middle of a rainstorm, but rain was good since it dampened the enemy's radar and visibility. Shortly before 11 p.m., the planes arrived over Lake Victoria and began to circle for a landing. Colonel Joshua Shani of the Israeli Air Force began his descent on Entebbe in the dead of night. As he approached, the rain and the darkness hid the airstrip from his vision, and Shawnee only saw the runway lights at the last moment. His C-130 touched down on Entebbe's airstrip, using only its brakes and no engines to be as silent as possible. As the plane rolled to a stop, paratroopers jumped out the side doors to set the landing lights for follow-on aircraft. Even before the C-130 stopped at the end of the runway, The commandos had the black Mercedes and the Land Rovers running. They loaded their AK-47s, whispered to themselves, and muttered prayers as the plane stopped. It was midnight in Uganda. Operation Thunderbolt had landed. As soon as the plane had dropped its ramp, the vehicles were off, loaded with Israeli commandos of the unit, driving in a straight line for the old terminal. They rolled forward at an easy 25 miles per hour, trying to maintain the facade of a Ugandan VIP in his escort so they didn't alarm the sentries. And then something went wrong. Two Ugandan sentries stepped out of the darkness, and one of them raised his rifle and shouted a challenge. Major Betzer assumed from his service in Uganda that it was a normal challenge and that the soldier would not fire. The lights of the old terminal came closer and closer in the darkness. They had to avoid alerting the terrorists before they could break into the building. If the Ugandan sentry fired, or someone fired an unsilenced shot at him, the hostages could all be massacred in a matter of seconds. Yoni Netanyahu was convinced that the Ugandan sentry was about to shoot. He ordered the driver to cut to the right and give them a clear shot at the sentry with their silenced pistols. Betzer was shocked. This could blow their cover immediately. The massacre at Maalot flashed through his mind, with 22 school children dead on the floor. He said... Leave him, Yoni. It's just his drill. But Yoni was undeterred. He was convinced the Ugandan sentry would shoot. He and another commando opened fire from ten yards away, and their shots brought the sentry down as the vehicles closed in on the terminal. But as they passed the fallen Ugandan, he managed to rise back to his feet and squeeze off a long burst from his AK-47, shattering the silence of the night. Immediately, the following Israeli vehicles brought down the sentry in a hail of unsilenced gunfire. The element of surprise was gone. The terrorists had been alerted. Betzer expected the terminal to light up with explosives or gunfire at any minute. Netanyahu shouted at his driver to step on it. They had to get to the terminal before the terrorists could react. From inside the terminal, the terrified hostages jerked awake at the sound of gunfire and saw tracers flying across the night sky. Mothers and fathers clutched at their children, old jewish men and women cowered on the floor and everyone looked around with wild eyes jean-jacques Mamouni and some other french teenagers hid beneath blankets everyone held their breath as wilfred boza and three other terrorists stormed into the room submachine guns at the ready as the car and the land rovers screeched to a halt 50 yards away from the terminal the commandos of the unit jumped out like a set of camouflaged wolves their AK 47s on single shot to keep friendly fire to a minimum. Mookie Betzer sprinted through the rain, across the tarmac, towards the terminal, his assault teams right behind him. Already, gunfire was lashing out at them from every direction. Betzer remembered it later. The tragedy of Ma'alot came back to me, and the word beat inside my head Ma'alot, Ma'alot. I felt it was going to happen again. Inside the terminal, the hostages waited with bated breath as the terrorists turned their heads from the shots outside to the 105 prone forms in the dark terminal floor. Ilan Hartuv saw Boza and Kuhlman turn towards them and lift their weapons, seconds away from killing every man, woman, and child in the room. As Muki Betzer rushed to the first terminal entrance, he found it blocked and yelled at his soldiers to push to the second door. Sergeant Amir Offer sprinted past his commander for the other entrance, which went against the original plan. As Betzer shouted and Offer changed direction, Yoni Netanyahu stopped for a second, gazing at the outer wall of the terminal in the pouring rain. He was probably trying to figure out what the holdup was or checking on his other team. But by stopping in open ground, while most of his men were hugging the wall and moving quickly, he was exposed. From the control tower, the vantage point that General Gurr had warned him about, a few shots were fired. Netanyahu fell with barely a sound. As the terrorists leveled their weapons at the hostages inside the terminal, those who could see what was happening waited to die. The Israeli plan had failed. The PFLP terrorists and their German comrades had the opportunity at this very moment to kill every single one of the hostages if they chose to do so. But instead of pulling the trigger, Wilfred Boza hesitated. He and Kuhlman seemed uneasy. At the last second, as Yoni Netanyahu was falling with his fatal wound and Muki Betzer's team was approaching the terminal doors, Boza yelled at the hostages to retreat and take cover. Then he, Kuhlman, and the others turned to face the doors, tugging the pins from their grenades and raising their weapons. This action, more than anything the Israelis did saved the hostages in Entebbe. Wilfred Boza and Bridget Kuhlmann had the opportunity to carry out their threat to kill the hostages to strike a terrible blow against the Zionist regime. Why didn't they? Was it their conversation with Kajot when he compared them to Nazis? Or when Yitzhak David showed them his Auschwitz tattoo? Was it their realization that they were shooting a bunch of helpless victims and that that was much different? than the anonymous bombings they had conducted for the last few years? Or was it maybe that last human instinct, the noble leftist ideals of freedom and liberation, that they believed in, even if they had resorted to blood and terror to carry them out? We will never know. Within the next few seconds, Sergeant Amir Offer fired into the room with his AK-47. A bullet hit Wilfred Boza in the head, and he collapsed. Offer charged into the room, firing more rounds into Boza's body. He failed to see Bridget Kulman and one of the Palestinians, who were concealed by the door, aim their own weapons at him, but another Israeli came in a millisecond behind him and shot them both dead. The hostages were screaming and crying with terror, covering their faces as if the blankets could protect them. As the eyes of the Israeli commandos desperately probed the darkness, looking for any sign of hostility, another of the Palestinian terrorists tossed a small object into the hall. It was an incendiary grenade, and it set fire to much of the room. Muki Betzer, rushing into the terminal, saw the terrorists and killed him immediately. As he scanned the room, blood pumping, heart racing, Betzer saw a figure leap up from a pile of blankets that had been set on fire by the grenade. This figure emerged from the only part of the hall that the Israeli commandos could not exactly see. In a split second, the Israelis saw his youth and dark complexion and made a fatal decision. Fetzer and one other man raised their rifles and opened fire, killing the young man on the spot. It was not a Palestinian terrorist at all, but the cheerful French-Israeli teenager Jean-Jacques Memouni. Friendly fire, not the act of any terrorist, claimed the first hostage death of the Entebbe crisis. The Israelis barely avoided shooting another quick-moving shape, only to realize at the last second that it was a little girl and check their fire. This whole sequence of events, from the first Unsilenced rounds fired at the Ugandan sentry to these final tragic shots took less than a minute. Less than a minute? In that time frame, Yoni Netanyahu had been critically wounded. Wilfred Boza and Bridget Kuhlman had both died, and one of the hostages had been fatally shot by the men who had come to rescue him. Two other hostages had been wounded in the crossfire. But the vast majority of the hostages were safe, and any immediate threat to their safety had been eliminated. Sarah Davidson remembered that moment. We lift our heads in disbelief, and we see the most magnificent sight of our lives. Like a dream, a short soldier, his face darkened, in battle fatigues, wearing a white hat and holding a large machine gun. He looks calmly at us and says, Are you all right? Come on, we've come to take you home. The unit's doctor was already treating Yoni Netanyahu's wounds, but the prognosis was not good. Meanwhile, the other assault forces were tearing into their targets. Teams from the unit stormed through the old terminal, clearing rooms in the darkness and smoke of the Ugandan night. Once the area was finally secured, the bodies of all four hijackers and their three PFLP comrades were identified, fingerprinted, and documented. Three other terrorists were spending the night in Kampala and got away clean, and there was no sign of Wadia Haddad. Many Ugandan soldiers also died in the clearing of the terminal, but most escaped and fled into the night. Muki Betzer had been right, Many of these men were not prepared to die for Idi Amin. As other C-130s landed on the airstrip, the BTR armored vehicles rolled off the ramps with a growl, spinning off into the night to clear any Ugandan resistance and look out for reinforcements. Brigadier General Don Shumron's command post was soon set up on the airstrip, and an antenna erected to coordinate with higher headquarters. Within nine minutes, all four aircraft were on the ground and the new terminal was being stormed by Israeli paratroopers. During this attack, one paratrooper, Sergeant Surin Hershko, was shot and wounded in the neck by a Ugandan policeman. This wound would paralyze him for life. In the meantime, the unit had lost its commander. The desperately wounded Yoni Netanyahu was put on a Land Rover and driven back to the plains. As they drove through the dark and the rain, Yoni mumbled something, but no one could understand it. Before they reached the plane, his heart had stopped, and by the time the medics got to him, it was too late. Lieutenant Colonel Yonatan Netanyahu was dead. With Yoni gone, Muki Betzer assumed control of the unit's troops in the old terminal, which was still under fire from the determined Ugandans in the control tower, the ones that had killed Yoni. Betzer called for fire support, and one of the BTR personnel carriers rolled up and blasted chunks of concrete off the tower with its machine guns and rocket-propelled grenades. Once General Shomron gave the all clear, another BTR rolled over to the airfield and began to pour lead into Idi Amin's 11 Soviet-made MiG fighter jets. Soon the entire Ugandan Air Force was up in flames. As the remaining Israeli forces fanned out, To provide security against a possible counterattack, the Israelis began to evacuate their civilians, since every minute counted until the Ugandan army got its crap together. Many of the former hostages behaved with shock, or even outright selfishness in some cases, trying to recover personal belongings as precious minutes were lost. As they packed onto the Land Rovers, firing came once again from that freaking control tower. Man, whoever was in there must have been a champ, seriously. It took another blast of fire from the Israeli armored vehicles for the civilians to be able to escape. Some chose to ride on the trucks, but many just sprinted through the pouring rain to the waiting C-130, parents carrying their children and the unwounded helping the wounded. One of the Air France stewardesses, dressed in nothing but her underwear, went into a panic attack before Sergeant Amir Offer tossed her over his shoulder and ran to the plane, bullets flying by his head. As the hostages crowded onto the plane, the Israelis asked Captain Michel Bakos, the pilot, to account for his fellow refugees. Jean-Jacques Mamouni was dead. Three Israelis were seriously wounded, and one hostage, Dora Block, was in the hospital at Kampala, but there was no chance of going back for her. Ugandan military forces were already moving towards the airport. After miscounting, recounting, and then re-recounting the hostages, what, you think, Doing this in the middle of absolute chaos is easy. The Israelis were finally sure they had accounted for every civilian except Dora Block. After the plane sat under enemy fire for many minutes, waiting for the count to be finished, General Shamron was finally satisfied. The hostage plane took off at 12.52, 51 minutes after the first plane had landed. The Air Force techs had been unable to refuel from Entebbe Airport, so the planes would have to fly for Kenya. As Muki Betzer and the unit piled back into their cars and drove onto the ramp, the lone Ugandan soldier in the tower fired at them once again. Betzer was annoyed and impressed. God, he's stubborn! Idi Amin would later award that one persistent Ugandan for his bravery, but even he couldn't stop the Israelis from escaping. At 0140 hours Ugandan time, one hour 39 minutes after the first plane had landed the final two planes departed entebbe airport they left behind between 33 to 45 ugandan soldiers along with all the hijackers dead behind them they brought off every israeli soldier they had come with with only five wounded and yoni netanyahu with a white sheet over his body they left with all 105 hostages when it came to entebbe at least no man had been left behind. After refueling at Kenya and taking care of the wounded, the Israeli strike team took flight for Israel with hostages in tow. All flew out of Africa, up the Red Sea, towards Israel and safety. At 0945 on July 4th, 1976, the planes landed to the cheering and waving of massive crowds. The IDF's chief rabbi played loud, ragged notes on a ram's horn, an ancient song on an ancient instrument, to celebrate the occasion. The Israelis had saved their people. The hostages had all come home. Well, almost all. Jean-Jacques Mamouni's family was not so lucky. They had been ecstatic to hear the news that the hostages had been freed, but they only learned the tragic news of their son's death when they had already arrived at the airport. Jean Jacques' sister would later recall how her mother fainted and her father screamed in grief as people cheered and laughed around them. The Mamouni family were given the runaround on what exactly had happened to their beloved son and brother, and only in the 2000s did Muki Betzer reveal the truth to Jean Jacques' younger brother. Even the most successful operations have their costs. Three more hostages did not make it to the victory celebration. Two of the wounded Israelis, Pascha Cohen, and Ida Barakovich died in the hospital in Kenya. There was, of course, the matter of Dora Bloch, the 73-year-old Jewish grandmother in the hospital at Kampala, Uganda's capital. The Ugandan health minister, Henry Chimba, had let her rest overnight in the hospital rather than returning her to the terminal on the evening of July 3rd. He thought he was doing her a favor, but he had not counted on the Israeli rescue mission or on the wrath of Idi Amin. When Idi Amin, had first heard reports of shooting at Entebbe, he didn't assume it was a rescue mission because he thought it was impossible. He thought it was a military coup. See, this is the problem when you launch a coup. A bunch of other people look at you and think, hmm, I bet I could do that too. This understandably makes you paranoid, and Idi Amin was always looking over his shoulder. No one is more afraid of being stabbed in the back than a backstabber. As soon as there were reports of shooting at Entebbe, Amin went and hid in one of his safe houses. For that matter... So did most of his generals, who assumed the same thing. This lack of leadership delayed the Ugandan response to the Israeli rescue mission. But when Amin figured out what had happened, his vengeance was fierce. He had not just been attacked, but humiliated, his air force blown up, and his soldiers killed under his very nose. One of his first acts of revenge was carried out on the one hostage still within his power, Dora Block, who had been traveling to her son's wedding, was dragged from her hospital bed by the State Research Bureau and murdered on the side of the highway. Her body was buried in an unmarked grave, and though basically everyone in Uganda knew where it was, no one dared disturb it and risk the wrath of Idi Amin. One Ugandan who took a photograph of the body was whisked away and executed shortly after. Dora Block's body only returned to Israel after Idi Amin's overthrow in 1979 but Amin did not stop there. He had Entebbe's air traffic controllers executed, one by having nails hammered into his head. He also took his wrath out on 3,000 Karamajong tribesmen, an ethnicity widely perceived to be loyal to Kenya, who he had slaughtered in the days after the Entebbe attack. We have to acknowledge that as much attention as I've paid to certain individuals in this podcast, those 3,000 Karamajong had done nothing to deserve this cruelty. They hadn't even played a part in this whole drama. They were the costliest consequence of the whole hijacking saga, and they paid a terrible price for one man's dented ego. But Amin's aura of invincibility had been shattered by his humiliation in the Entebbe raid. After trying desperately for three years to regain control of his terrified country, he was overthrown in 1979 by a Tanzanian invasion and fled to Saudi Arabia. Field Marshal Dr. Idi Amin Dada, who was responsible for the deaths of possibly 300,000 people, lived the next 24 years in quiet seclusion. He eventually died, of all things, of syphilis. Someone's revenge caught up with him, even if the Israelis didn't. Israeli revenge probably did catch up with Wadi Haddad, who died in 1979, likely from the poison that the Israeli Mossad slipped into his drink. The last perpetrator of the Air France hijacking was finally in the ground, but the most well-known casualty of the raid on Entebbe somehow lives on. Lieutenant Colonel Yonatan Netanyahu was laid to rest on July 6, 1976, in Mount Herzl Cemetery in Jerusalem. Defense Minister Shimon Peres, who had wept at the news of Yoni's death, gave the eulogy. Overnight, Yoni became a national hero, with schools and military bases and scholarships named after him. Finally, Operation Thunderbolt was officially named Operation Yonatan in his honor. To Yoni's younger brother Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu, the man who as of this recording serves as Israel's prime minister, the death of his older brother was a life-changing moment of grief. Bibi says to this day that his present course in life is a result of his brother's death at Entebbe. What Bibi's effect has been on the history of Israel and the world is just one more effect, maybe one more casualty, of Operation Thunderbolt. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well, let's see. Operation Thunderbolt, Operation Yonatan, the raid on Entebbe, was one of the most important events in Israeli history. For one thing, it was an enormous morale boost for Israel. After the trauma and near defeat of the 1973 Yom Kippur War, after almost a decade of Palestinian terror attacks, after the bitter failure at Ma'alot, the Israeli defense forces had recovered their reputation with the most daring and successful hostage rescue in history. It was one of those things where people remembered where they were when they heard about it. It was a national moment, a moment of triumph in Israeli cultural memory. And the raid could have failed. Maybe it should have failed based on the mistakes made, and if it had done so, it would have been crippling, a catastrophic defeat that may well have ruined Israel's credibility as a military force, and opened it up to further terrorist attacks. But it succeeded, and this was mostly due to the professionalism and ability of Israel's special forces, but also due to luck. Israel was about to negotiate with the terrorists when they received three lucky breaks, the release of hostages who gave up vital intel, the extension of the deadline, which gave them vital time, and the diplomatic breakthrough with Kenya, without which the evacuation would have been impossible. And it had almost failed anyway. When Yonatan Netanyahu jumped the gun a bit too early by killing the Ugandan sentry, the unsilenced assault rifle that followed destroyed the unit's element of surprise. This mistake, yes, a serious mistake, almost ruined the whole operation. Muki Betzer, in later years would be harshly critical of Netanyahu's decision. And he is among a number of people who have questioned whether Netanyahu really deserved to be propped up as this sacrificial hero when his carelessness almost cost Israel everything. And for all that, the final reason that Operation Thunderbolt succeeded was the terrorists themselves. As I mentioned, Wilfred Boza and Bridget Kuhlman, along with their PFLP accomplices, failed to carry out their threats when the time came. The terrorists had the opportunity to kill the hostages, but didn't. The raid on Entebbe only succeeded thanks to what I can only call the spirit of humanity. I'm not sure what to make out of that. Maybe someone smarter than me has an answer. But why is the raid on Entebbe important to us today? Well, it shaped our world in more ways than we think. The success of the unit inspired the creation of many similar organizations across the Western world, including the United States Delta Force, which was established in 1977, one year after Entebbe, largely based on the success of that operation. The first Entebbe copycat operation, the unsuccessful American raid to rescue Iranian hostages in 1980, may well have cost Jimmy Carter the 1980 presidential election to Ronald Reagan. Either way, the Entebbe operation has been a model for special forces ever since it happened. Admiral William McRaven, commander of Special Operations Command and the overall commander of the 2011 raid to kill Osama bin Laden, wrote one of the most important military professional treatments of the Entebbe raid, and the Entebbe raid was among many that influenced the Osama bin Laden raid. The Entebbe raid also shaped the world of terror. After Entebbe, Airline hijackings tended to die out as a tactic, especially now that the Palestinians realized Israel would cross any distance to rescue its people. It helped push the Palestinians, at least, to a more conciliatory and peace-oriented position throughout the 1980s. But after the 1980s, terrorism got somehow worse, more violent, more ruthless. When airline hijackings did become a big deal again, over American skies in 2001, The tactics of Al-Qaeda would make Wilfred Boza and Bridget Kuhlman seem downright naive. But Entebbe's most profound effect has been on Israeli politics and culture. The enormous success of the Entebbe raid transformed Israeli thinking on terrorism, not necessarily for the better. The success of a long-shot military solution seemed to convince many Israeli leaders that a military option was the answer to every situation, that there was no need for compromise when the IDF was standing by. When you have a really awesome hammer, every problem looks like a nail. This helped lead Israel to disaster in Lebanon in 1982, and in later conflicts within the Palestinian territories, and has made an Israeli-Palestinian peace far less likely. It has been the indirect cause of vast suffering for both the Israeli and Palestinian peoples. Using military options when the diplomatic option is better can be a catastrophic choice, but the memory of Entebbe has closed many Israeli minds against the diplomatic option. No one has promoted this more than Yoni's brother, Benjamin Netanyahu, who as Prime Minister of Israel has taken a hard line against Palestine and any possible foreign enemy. The overmilitarization of Israeli society since 1976, and its hyper-aggressive outlook towards the world, where every problem becomes a military problem, is a direct result of the Entebbe crisis, what some commentators have called Entebbe syndrome. Is it possible that Israel has taken the wrong lessons from Entebbe? How we remember our history. How we react to our history is often at least as important as the history itself. Even when we win a great victory, even when we achieve a lasting, amazing triumph, it is important not to take the wrong lessons away, or that glory could turn to ashes in our mouths. But when we look at the long-term effects, it is easy to forget the short-term. It's hard to ignore the joy and relief of the 102 hostages that were liberated from a near-impossible situation, or the achievement of the Israeli forces in the epic rescue. It's hard not to sympathize with Sarah Davidson, who saw a soldier emerging from the smoke like an angel, a soldier of Yahweh who had come to her rescue, to ensure that she could grow old and watch her sons grow into men. For these people, the Radon Entebbe is much more... Than just history. Hey, thanks a bunch for listening to me today, as always. I hope that this story gave you food for thought, because it's definitely stuck in my head. Thanks also again for your continued support and feedback. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends about it. If you don't like it, go on and tell your enemies. If you want to read some of my writings on the Arab Israeli conflict, or just check out a bunch of my ramblings. If you want that missing context I breezed over earlier in the episode, you can check my website and leave a comment at unknown soldiers If you want to support in other ways, you can find a donate button there as well. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK soldiers pod. You can even email me at unknown soldiers at gmail.com. And one more thing, pack your bags because next week we We're going to a craggy little island in the middle of the Mediterranean. The Knights of Malta, the last crusading order of the Christian world, will face off against the early modern world superpower, the Ottoman Empire, in one of history's greatest sieges. Join me next week on Unknown Soldiers.